Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are here with us this morning. We thank you for the promise of new life, a promise that we witnessed in Chantal being lowered into the water and rising again, symbolizing death and new life. And we thank you for the life eternal that we can have, not just someday there and then, but here and now. Help us to live in the light of that new life. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's Easter Sunday, sometime in the early to mid-third century. Some people have spent the entire night in a vigil of prayer, scripture, reading, and instruction. The rooster crows at dawn, and they're led out to a pool of flowing water. They remove their clothes. The women let down their hair and remove their jewelry. They renounce Satan and are anointed from head to foot in oil. Then they're led naked into the water. They're asked the question, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? They reply, I believe. And they're plunged beneath the water and raised up again. They're asked a second question, 
Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was dead and buried and rose on the third day, fully alive from the dead and ascended in the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead? Again, they reply, I believe. And they're plunged beneath the water and lifted up again. They're asked a third question. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? Again, they reply, I believe. And a third time, they're immersed. Then they're led back out of the water, anointed with oil once more, clothed in fresh new garments, blessed and led into the community where for the first time they share in communion before being commissioned to go out into the world to serve God and grow in faith. That segment of the apostolic tradition, a treatise which dates from the early centuries of the church and was rediscovered in Egypt in the 19th century, offers a fascinating insight into the life and practice of some of our early forefathers and foremothers. Some of the tradition we handle a little differently. Chantal, I'm sure, is glad that we no longer baptize naked at dawn, after an all-night Bible study session, and that we only immerse people once rather than three times. Other bits we have kept, the immersion in water and profession of faith. Our baptistry is at the entrance of the church for a reason. It might make practical sense for us to start inside the church and go out wet into the foyer, on the side closer to the changing rooms. But there's a theological reason why we start outside the worship area and emerge from the water into this space. For baptism is about the start of the Christian life and entry into the faith community. But this excerpt is fascinating for another reason. It tells us that possibly from as early as 230 AD, something recognizable as the roots of the Apostles' Creed was already established as part of the baptismal ceremony of the church. It was rooted in a pledge of allegiance to the God of the gospel, revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was designed in an age when people didn't have Bibles of their own and the vast majority of them couldn't read them anyway, that even the least literate would be able to retain at least some of the Christian story. And the Apostles' Creed is going to form the basis of what I'll be considering with you on Sundays for the next little while. 
I recorded a little video giving some background of the series, which you may have seen last week or you may have found on our YouTube channel. You can, it's still there if you haven't already seen it. I'm not going to repeat all that. It just takes time. The word creed is taken from the first line in Latin, credo in Deum. I believe in God. Hence the t series title, Credo. This morning I want to focus on that one word, credo. I believe. I think it's fair to say to explore something like the Apostles' Creed and to affirm I believe is quite a countercultural thing to these days. And I'm pretty sure in part that's why I've been reluctant to do this series for a number of years and it's only really now I'm getting round to it. It kind of smacks of dare I say it, organized religion, which is always seen for some reason as spirituality's less attractive sibling. We live in an age where believing in anything has fallen on hard times. Doubt and skepticism are a lot trendier. Not just in faith and religion, we are skeptical of anything being handed down to us. And not without reason. The mere existence and the necessity of something like fact checker on BBC news reports is a sad indictment of how truthfulness and straightness seem to have become viewed as optional or negotiable rather than an essential part of our discourse. And yet, life is founded on trust. For good or ill, all of us are trusting stuff all the time. When was the Battle of Hastings? 1066. How do you know? You were taught it at school. Yeah, none of us were there. Not even Winnie was there. Or... You know, when we buy a guidebook, a rough guide, we're going on a holiday to Australia or whatever, you know, we buy the rough guide and we read and we sort of think about, oh, I'll visit that and I'll visit that and we look at the maps and whatever. We're trusting them, even though we have absolutely no way a lot of the time of knowing whether that person's telling us the truth. Medicine, you go to the doctor. The doctor writes you, a well, types you a prescription these days. You take it to the pharmacy, the pharmacy you know, comes out, hands you something, and, you, and it says, take this three times a day or however long, and you do it. You can't verify everything. All of us are trusting in stuff all the time. The sources we trust may differ. But at some point, we are all trusting that others are telling us the truth. Our social life is held together by trust. Which is odd because history has told us that human beings are not always trustworthy. And yet we need it. We come into the world totally dependent, bringing nothing to the party but life. We have to trust to survive. 
And so it is with the new life of faith. Another reason that it is countercultural is that the West really idolizes the individual. We talk about personal faith, and I don't dispute the importance of that. We have heard of Chantal making her decision to follow Jesus. But while faith is personal, it has never been individual. A creed allows us to test the story in which we are putting our trust against the story that has sustained people down through centuries. It stops us sliding into a kind of a consumer-like faith that's merely built around what feels good, what suits us, what's nice and easy for us to believe, what we'd like to be true. It's there to stop us creating God in our image. Which brings us to another reason people are suspicious of creeds. There is this sense of, can I with integrity declare, I believe all this stuff? And that's why I'm starting with just those two words, I believe. Because neither of them are without their problems. Something that I think got lost in baptism down the years, is that it can become what a good friend once described to me as a testimony with a towel. It's about expressing our own individual faith. And whilst I don't believe that there was anything special about that water, although it was lovely and warm, thank you, young Sheik, if he's still around. I know young Sheik actually had a bad back this week, so I'm really pleased and I'm really grateful to him for what he did there. Uh, yeah, uh, there was nothing special about the water or what Sue, Chantal and I did in that pool. But baptism is still just more than a testimony with a towel. It's about being born into a family. It's about joining ourselves to a community. And that's why we start outside and then emerge from the water into the church. Chantal this morning was her declaring her faith in God, her trust in Jesus, and in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. She was emerging from the water into a new life, but it is one that will be lived within the church. And for this season in particular, within this church family. We are baptised into something, into a story that is way bigger than we are. And something similar can be said of the creed. It isn't something we do very often, if ever. I probably can count on one hand the number of times I've said the creed, except when I've visited Anglican churches. But when we say the creed, we join our voices to a communal voice that is greater than us all. See, something that's not immediately obvious is that when we say I in the creed, it isn't me 
Andrew Jackson. Or you, Chantal Unwander, or Sue Wally, or John Newby, or Mark Jeffries. The eye is the body of Christ. When Christians say the creed, we are saying, this is a story we declare together. It stresses our unity. It says we belong together as people shaped by that story of a God who longs for relationship, who created a world, who has become one of us, who has took on flesh and blood and lived within that world, and who is engaged in the work of redeeming that world. But it's, also, but it's not just the word I that we need to clarify. It's also the word believe. You see, in our age, belief can be quite a mental thing. It's giving our assent to something. I'm reminded of a story in which Brian McLaren interviewed a bookstore manager and was asking him about which were the most popular types of non-fiction books. And at the top, probably not that surprisingly, was how to get rich quick type books. But after that came books on spirituality and in particular Buddhism. And he asked, what is it about Buddhism that makes it so popular compared with, say, Christianity or Islam? And the answer was that Christianity often presents itself as a system of belief, whereas Buddhism presents itself as a way of life. And I have to admit, that's one of the reasons I wrestled with whether to do this. Because, yeah, I'm a cerebral bloke, but I'm not actually really that intellectually interested in a load of ideas. Jesus calls us to a particular way of life. When Jesus walked by the shore of Galilee, he said, come, follow me, not sign here at the bottom of this list of theological points. Credo is much more than a mental exercise, an intellectual agreement with a point. See, the problem with that is that it makes it all about us, what we can summon the belief in. But actually, the real meaning of the word credo turns that around. Probably a better way of saying it is, I have confidence in God, the Father Almighty. Or, I trust in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Because the focus then is not on me and what I believe. It's on the God in whom I put my trust. It's not just saying, I believe there is a God or that there was a man called Jesus. True faith places its confidence not in not what belief you or I have, but in the faithfulness of God. And that kind of leads me to a word for those who, as we approach this, as we work through this stuff, will find themselves somewhere along the way saying, can I, integrity with, can I with integrity say all this? 
There's a lovely verse towards the end of our Bibles. It's a tiny little book, but it contains some cracking gems. And it's written by Jude. And Jude's believed to be the brother of Jesus. He's also believed, you know, you've got to say, uh, you've got to feel for him. His, his eldest brother was the Messiah. One of his other brothers was the head of the church. You know, what, what else was there left for Jude? But Jude wrote this little book that appears at the back of our Bible. And it says this, be merciful to those who doubt. That means be merciful to one another, but also to ourselves. As we make our way through these words, there may be bits and pieces where we struggle to say hand and heart. Yeah, I'm convinced of that. If you were in, I've, I know people who are in churches that say these words week in, week out, and they often joke that there are moments where they're kind of crossing their fingers. The central point is not my or your belief, but the one in whom we trust. And God is faithful even when we're not. God is faithful even when we don't get it. But true belief will be expressed in our response. Jesus says the wise don't just hear what he says. They don't just think, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That makes sense. I, I, I can remember that. They do it. They live it. And that's why it sits so well with baptism to approach the creed. Baptism is not, baptism is about putting off an old way of life and stepping into a new one. It's allowing a different story to shape who you are and who you are becoming. Today, Chantal was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the same was true of every one of you who was ever baptized. Baptism isn't for those who have made it, who have got it sussed. It's for those who know that on their own, they're never going to make it, that they will never get it sussed. And so they place their trust in the God who is revealing himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God who creates our world, loves our world, sustains our world, and is redeeming our world, and is reconciling us and all things to God's self. Faith can stay in the head. Or faith can sometimes be portrayed, as a child once described it, as believing things you know aren't true. It's not about believing ten impossible things before breakfast. Trust leads to a response. Trust takes the risk of acting on what we believe. We're going to sing a song in a moment. Trust lives with the I cannot tell parts. Because through trial and experience, it reaches the but this I know moments. Trust leads to experience, which deepens trust, not in our faith, but in God's faithfulness. And if these words are to make any difference to us, 
they will need to make the short journey from the head to the heart. So let me ask you a few questions. It's one thing to believe. Have you met him? It's one thing to believe. God forgives. Do you trust him for forgiveness? It's one thing to believe that God is reliable. Are we prepared to lean on him? My prayer for the next few weeks is yes, that we will learn something more about the God in whom we trust, but that we will come to know him, to encounter him for ourselves and deepen our knowledge of trust in that God. That it won't be merely about getting our heads around ideas about God, but opening ourselves to receive all that we want, that he wants to bring us. That we will immerse ourselves in the story of God and his love. And yes, we commit ourselves to that God. But we are committing ourselves to one who has already committed himself to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and who will not abandon us, who has promised he will be with us always. Grace and peace be with you.